Welcome to the Meb Favor Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. This podcast is sponsored by the Soothe app. We all know how stressful investing in volatile markets can be. That's why I use Soothe. Soothe delivers five-star certified massage therapists to your home, office, or hotel in as little as an hour. They bring everything you need for a relaxing spa experience without the hassle of traveling to a spa. Podcast listeners can enjoy 30 bucks to their first Soothe massage with the promo code MEB. Just download the Soothe app and insert the code before booking. Happy relaxation. Welcome podcast listeners. We are very excited today. By the time this podcast comes out, I will officially be 40. This is my last podcast in my 30s. So to celebrate, we thought we would have the great William Bernstein. Bill, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Bill's chatting with us from Oregon. And for those who aren't familiar, um, Bill runs Efficient Frontier Advisors. This is an investment advisory firm, but also it started out as a practicing neurologist also has a PhD in chemistry. You know, I had, a, I had a biotech background, but but not that involved. Prolific writer. He's written about 100 books by now. Um, but Bill, as we st- just get started before we dive into all the investments, um, for the listeners who might not be as familiar with you, maybe give us a, just a, a short background on, on, your, on your history and how you transitioned uh, in, into the investing world. Okay, happy to. Just just one fast detail I always like to get out there. I'm not the, the manager of Efficient Frontier Advisors. I'm the co-manager. I have, a, I have a partner, a lovely lady by the name of Susan Sharon. The story of how I evolved from medicine into finance, as you might imagine, is kind of a shaggy dog story, which is, you know, about 25, 30 years ago, I realized that I lived in a country that didn't have a functioning social welfare system, that I was responsible for uh, my own retirement uh, savings and my own retirement income in large part. And so uh, I was going to have to invest on my own. And I approached it the way I thought anyone with scientific training would do, which is I read the peer-reviewed literature and basic textbooks on the subject, and then I realized I was going to have to collect data and build models. And by the time I was done that process, which took you know, a couple of years, I realized that I had um, uh, acquired knowledge base and some mathematical tools that were of use to other small investors. And so I decided to, uh, to write a book. And eventually the book got published. And when you publish finance books, reporters start calling on you and people start asking you to manage their money. And then I, you know, 
segued into money management, and that got me segued into other fields as well. Uh, so that's that's the short version of the story. I thought we'd use uh, one of your more recent books as a framework, and, and a lot of them have followed a similar path to, to, to varying degrees of complexity. And, and like you mentioned, you know, your first book, for, it, certainly you mentioned a lot of the readers said, great book, Bill, but, you know, a little too complex for me. And so uh, we actually just reread one of yours last week. That's readers is about 40 pages. So you can knock it out in about an hour. And it's geared particularly towards younger investors, but the, but the lessons are timeless. And it's called If You Can. And I'd like to start out with, with a quote that you had in the beginning. And you said, would you believe me if I told you there's an investment strategy that any seven-year-old could understand will take you 15 minutes of work per year, outperform 90% of the investing pros, and make you a millionaire over time? So I thought maybe you could uh, give us a little insight into that strategy, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jump off from there. Okay. Well, just to give you some background, the trick with making a million dollars is to have a long period of time to do it over. Uh, and so the book was aimed at young savers. Um, our firm manages money for older high net worth uh, investors, and I thought it would be worthwhile for me to engage in an eleemosynary activity for younger people to enable them to get started. So I basically, you know, make this book available pretty much for for free. Uh, it's available as a free Acrobat download, and if you want it on your Kindle, you'll have to pay a dollar, because that's what Amazon makes me do. The strategy is is very simple. It's just a simple um, three-fund, what's called a three-fund portfolio in the biz, which is uh, equal parts um, U.S. total stock market, foreign total stock market, and U.S. bond market, and you can do that uh, for next to nothing in expenses. And if you have the discipline uh, to simply put that into your 401k plan, apply that strategy to your 401k plan, then you can save 15% of your portfolio. You'll wind up at some point in the future with a million dollars. Now, it won't be, you know, you'll have to adjust that down for inflation. It won't be quite as good as it seems now. But, you know, it'll be a solid start towards your retirement. And the title comes from the fact that it's very simple. And the hook there is that it's simple, but not easy. And the analogy I use is losing weight, all right? It's extremely easy to lose weight. All you have to do is eat less and exercise more, but it's not easy. And finance is the same way. Investing is the same way. It is very simple, but it is not easy. And uh, what, that's what the book is about, is enables it to make it a little easier and a little more understandable. It's a great jumping off point because I was going to joke and say, all right, podcast over, everyone, you have the allocation, you can just move on. But that's not really the challenge. And the key word you talk about being in this book is, is the word if, if you can follow this simple um, proclamation. Well, um, it also mirrors, we're going to talk about today, you, you say there's five hurdles. And it mirrors some of the other books where you talk about some some similar, whether it's four to five hurdles, um, challenges. And also there's another phrase used, which I love, called the five horsemen of the personal finance apocalypse. But I figured we'll touch on all five here. And we'll be, begin with, from a, from a physician's phrase, probably take your medicine, with the first one being people spend way too much money. We just saw recent news today of an old Denver Broncos, Washington Redskins quarterback and, and all the trouble, uh, excuse me, running back Clinton Portis and all the trouble he had and got to the point of almost murdering his financial advisor. But we'll talk about this first. People spend way too much money. You want to you wanna start there? 
that's half of the problem. Uh, I guess I'm going to reveal a little bit of my politics, which is that we also live in a society that doesn't pay people very much for in, in a lot of lines of work. And, you know, in a lot of places, education and housing are so ridiculously expensive that it really is mathematically uh, impossible for for some people to save. And I think that that's, that's too bad. You know, the, the fact, and I'm sure you've heard this statistic, is that roughly half of the population couldn't uh, get their hands on $500 in cash to fix their car for, on an emergency basis if they, if they had to. And so that's, that's half the problem. The other half is, is more under your control, which is that we live in this very corrosive consumerist culture that tells you you have to have the fanciest uh, brand names in your shoes and in your phones and in your automobiles. Uh, and you have to live in a big house, and you have to, you know, drive a Beamer. The the key thing lies in understanding that it's really not material possessions that make you happy. You know, a Beamer isn't going to make you in the long run any happier than a Toyota. Um, you know, if you can buy an inexpensive uh, Android phone, you're going to be probably a lot better off than buying the latest Apple machine. It's, it, it's, all, it's all part and parcel of that. There's what's called the latte theory, which gets derided, but I still think there's a certain amount of truth to it. The latte theory is that if you cut out that one latte you have every day, that winds up being, you know, close to $100 uh, a month. And if you can save $100 a month and invest it well, then over time, you're going to have a fairly decent-sized portfolio. Now, the trick is uh, you, you, you really just can't have one latte factor as a it's not a sufficient uh, saving. Uh, you have to really have, you have to find five or six lattes in your life and cut them out. That's kind of the way I look at it. The easiest way that a young person can do that is to get a roommate. Cut out all six lattes at once by by getting a roommate. One of the interesting parts of, of this podcast, we talk so much focus historically on investing and focusing on the investing side, but we've had a couple people on, in particular one was Elizabeth Dunn, who talked about, she had a great book called Happy Money, and talking about a lot of the ways that people, you know, optimize on making money, but maybe not think as much about spending. And if they're really more thoughtful about the way they spend it, um, they, they could do a much better job as, of saving as well as spending on the things, uh, sorry, on, uh, like, say, experiences versus things. And there's two quotes from your books that I love, particularly you were fondly speaking about your parents and um, one where you said uh, your dad and made a quote where you say your, your neighbors owned a lot but didn't have a lot. And then a, a follow-up one I, I loved when you asked your parents, you said, are we rich? And they said, your mother and I are comfortably well-to-do. You don't have a dime, which I thought was really funny. But, 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 your, but your prescription was you said, first of all, when you're thinking about your per own personal finance is, is to get out of debt. And maybe talk quickly about that, and then we'll start to move on to the to the next hurdle. Well, I, I'm no expert in, in personal finance. Uh, you know, our firm, for example, doesn't do financial planning. We just do investment management. But you know, it's 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 fairly obvious that if you do have debt, you should consolidate it into uh, in the lowest interest rate you can. So, for God's sakes, get rid of your credit card uh, debt. Um, you know, your educational loans probably have a much lower interest rate. You know, you can get, get get rid of that later if you can. And then finally, the last debt you should get rid of is your mortgage, because if you have one, because after all, that's got the lowest interest rate. 
So the, the cool part about this book, and Jeff and I have talked a lot about this uh, and the need for financial education and how it's a shame that most uh, high schools don't teach personal finance, is that in this book, Bill ends every uh, each of the five chapters with a homework or, or book recommendation. So you're supposed to read the book through, and then you go back, and then you read these fallen readings. And so his, his um, recommendation for this chapter was The Millionaire Next Door by William Danko. But this will transition into this concept of to really succeed as an investor, you also need to understand some just finance basics. I think it's probably saying a lot where like so many of the the people um, that we talk to, you know, even professionals don't have a grounding. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about just gloss over the kind of the basics of stocks and bonds. But more importantly, you talk about the Gordon equation and, and kind of giving some idea of what you know, you think some of the basics are and why that's important? Well, yeah. I mean, the most important thing that you should have is some understanding of what you can actually expect from stocks and bonds. Um, stocks have to have higher returns than bonds. They must over the very long term, simply because they're so much riskier uh, than bonds. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that comes up very frequently is people will say, well, I'll take out a mortgage because I can borrow that money at three and a half or four percent and I can make a lot more money on my portfolio. Well, yes, you can, but you are taking a heck of a lot more risk when you, you do that. Um, and it's much smarter if you've got a mixed portfolio of stocks and bonds and you've got a mortgage to just pay off the mortgage. Uh, with the bonds in the portfolio, and then you've basically accomplished the same thing at a much lower cost. So that's the first thing to understand, is, is just how risky stocks are. You can easily, in the very short term, lose half of your money over a period of you know, a year or a year and a half, as happened in between 2007 and 2009. Um, and you know, history teaches that there are even worse scenarios than that. So the money that you're going to invest in stocks is money that you shouldn't need for at least 15 years, you know, 10, 15 years at the very, at the very minimum. So that's the the very the, the first thing you really need to understand is the risk between the is the connection between risk and return. Anytime anybody tells you uh, that they can give you high returns at no risk, that's a fairly surefire sign of fraud. Let's talk a little bit about expectations, and I think this is super useful. We, I've been given a couple of speeches lately where we cite a couple, State Street and then Financial Times. I mean, there's three or four of these studies where they, they poll individuals as well as institutions in the U.S. and then around the world, and they ask them what their expected returns for their portfolio as well as, as stocks are, and almost always without really much spread, the number comes in around 10%. I, I thought it might be useful for you to just kind of talk a little bit about expectations, maybe talk about your, your simple equation that you use for equity returns and then and then how this balanced portfolio might perform, because I think it'd be useful for people to hear it from the doctor on, on what a more reasonable expectation may be. Yeah, you, you primed me with that five minutes ago and I didn't bite. I wandered off. <laughs> sorry, sorry I did that. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, stocks, well, first of all, you know, the return on a bond is very simple. The expected return on a high-grade bond is simply its coupon. So, you know, the long treasury is yielding less than 3%. Um, the five-year treasury is yielding less than 2%. That's what you can expect. And that's, you know, even that 2% is not probably much more than the short-term rate of inflation. I think inflation is probably going the long-term going to be higher since that's what it's been historically. Uh, stocks are only a little more complicated. 
And there are many different ways at arriving at the Gordon equation. It makes it sound complicated. The Gordon equation isn't complicated. It simply says that the expected return on a stock on stocks is the dividend yield, which is 2%, um, plus the long-term dividend growth rate, which is probably around 5%. But in the slow inflation background, your environment, maybe it's closer to 4%. So you add 4% to 2%, and you get an expected 6% return. So if you have a mixed portfolio, you average together you know, 2% and 6%, and you get a return of 4%. And what that makes you know, abysmally clear is that how good an investor you are, or how successful you are in investing and saving, really depends far more upon uh, how successful you are at saving than you are investing. Your name could be Warren Buffett, and if you can't save, you're toast. You know, there's a huge gap between what Bill just talked about, and we talked about this a lot in the past, of, of this, you know, five, four, five, six nominal returns versus all, what all these pension funds expect at 8% and then these surveys of people expecting 10 One of the questions, I wasn't going to get into this now, but I, th- I think it's interesting, is that, you know, one way to listeners to um, certainly uh, deal with valuations and think about times when, when stocks may be expensive is that, you know, you rebalance. And so that naturally has you selling what's expensive and, and buying back into to what's cheap. But a question I wanted to pose to you is, you know, thinking about history and where markets have been, when, you know, whether it's Japan in the 80s or the U.S. in the 90s, and even, you know, so Jack Bogle has similar comments about expected returns, you know, being lower and saving more. I wonder, is there a valuation level where you would consider saying, you know, common sense would dictate that we should be reducing our stock exposure or uh, perhaps, you know, reducing the bond exposure? I know this is an area that a lot of people really struggle with. Um, is, is this something you've thought about or come up with any sort of takeaways or... Is it a, is the prescription just to, to buy and hold and, and move on? Yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought about more than a bit. You know, what Jack does is, is Jack Bogle does, is he adds a third term, which is a term for regression to the mean. So he says that if valuations are really high, you should subtract some of that expected return out and vice versa, if valuations are really low. And I think that there's some merit to that. The problem with that approach is that you're assuming that the past distribution of valuations is going to be the same as the future distribution of valuations. So, for example, the Schiller Cape is now close to 30, or it is about 30, uh, which is you know the most commonly um, used measure of, of valuation. Uh, the cyclically adjusted PA is what Cape stands for, and that's you know at about the 96th percentile if I've got the number right. So you would say, yeah, the market really looks overvalued. But the trouble is that it's at the 96th percentile of values between 1871 and 2017. And things, you know, the world was a lot different place in the year 1871 than it is is now. So maybe, you know, the value of of 30 is not at the 96th percentile. Maybe for future values, it's closer to the 60th or 70th percentile. You know, which gets into what we were talking about before the call, which is how do you identify a really overvalued, uh, a really overvalued market? And I think you do that more with sociological criteria than you do with with firm uh, econometric criteria. 
rather than trying to look at all these numbers and figure out, you know, whether it's it's outrageous or not, what you do is you simply look around you, and you know, is everybody talking about stocks? Uh, same thing goes for real estate, of course. If you go to a party and everybody is talking about flipping real estate or is brokering mortgages, uh, you can bet that there's a real estate bubble. Um, you know, if you go to a party. Uh, as happened frequently during the late 1990s, and everybody is talking about uh, how they're getting rich in tech stocks, uh, and particularly if they're people who in general are not particularly well-grounded in finance or don't have a background in it, then that's a sign of a bubble. When people are quitting their jobs to day trade or broker mortgages, that's the sign of uh, a bubble. If you exhibit skepticism about uh, the prospects for stocks, and people just don't disagree with you, but they disagree with you vehemently and tell you you don't get it uh, and that you're an idiot for not understanding things, or that you're an old fogey, that's the sign of a bubble. And finally, another sign of a bubble is when you start to see extreme predictions, all right? So a best-selling book in the year 1999 was a book called Dow 36,000, you know, at a time when the Dow was at 11,000. So this was an extreme prediction. It was a prediction that the stock market was going to tr more than triple in value. If you see those, even three of those four things, all right, uh, investing or trading being topic A, people quitting good jobs, getting vehemence in response to skepticism, or you start seeing a lot of extreme predictions, that to me is the danger signal. And we really don't see any of those things right now. Now, that doesn't mean that <laughs> the stock market can't fall 50% in the next year and a half, because it can do that for no reason at all. Um, but you know, I'm not terribly worried by valuations, you know, aside from, you know, that, you know, I always think it's a good idea to change your allocation a little tiny bit uh, in response to large changes in valuations. So we've seen, for example, the Cape, the Schiller Cape going from about 15 or 20 five years ago up to 30. And, you know, maybe you don't want to sell all your stocks right now, but maybe if your allocation back then was 60-40, maybe now it should be 55-45. There's, there's a great phrase that we had Rob Arnott on, and he referred to that concept as over-rebalancing. So when you're getting to areas where, you know, valuation may be, uh, or sentiment may be particularly extreme, then instead of rebalancing, like you said, to 60-40, maybe it's to 70-30, et cetera. And I love that phrase. I'd never heard it before. And by the way, uh, Bill's recommendation for a book for this um, hurdle was Common Sense on Mutual Funds by, by Bogle himself, which is which is a classic. And in this, you know, we started to touch on a handful of the topics in the third hurdle. So we can just segue right into that, which is the close cousin to hurdle two. And hurdle three is learning the basics of financial market history. And for the listeners who haven't spent much time here, this is probably my favorite area to go back and read all these books on historical markets. And Bill's actually written a couple but uh, two, so two quick questions. So one you already kind of answered, which is which bubbles are you seeing in the markets right now? And, and I'm of the same opinion you are, which you're not seeing a lot of the sentiment uh, extremes other than maybe in cryptocurrencies and Canadian real estate. I don't know. But um, but as you look at the current market now, so what what history does it seem to, to most resemble if, if there's such a thing? Um, and then also any other takeaways from from studying history that you think are particularly important uh, today? You know, I'm not sure that, that that there's really any correlate, historical correlate to the markets today, because what's 
characteristic or what was characteristic of the market, I would say, until about a year or two ago, was that everything seemed to be overvalued. Certainly three years ago, everything seemed to be almost equally overvalued. Stocks, bonds, foreign stocks, emerging markets, everything. And what has happened with the uh, European financial crisis and also the turbulence we've had over the past year or two in emerging markets is there's been a bit of bifurcation. Um, and so it looks about, I would say, if you were to ask me to give you a precise analogy, we're about halfway between where we were in, say, 2013 or 14, when everything was pretty much equally expensive, and where we were in the year 2000, when U.S. stocks, large U.S. stocks, were ridiculously expensive, and everything else was fairly valued, if not cheap. Because uh, everybody had piled into the tech stocks, so I, I do think that there, are, you know, there are higher expected returns in emerging market stocks and in developed non-U.S. markets, and I see the U.S. as being uh, fairly more than richly more than richly valued. So, you know, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, if you had if one third if one third of your stocks were uh, of your stock portfolio was Foreign uh, four or five years ago, maybe now it should be 35 or 40 percent. You know, buy, you know, sell when you have to sell stocks, sell the U.S. stocks, and when you have to buy stocks, buy the foreign stocks. Well, preaching to the choir, and, and the two book recommendations, which by the way, we'll link to in the show notes, are Devil Take the Hindmost, as well as one of my favorites that I've read recently is called The Great Depression, A Diary by Benjamin Roth, which is a really useful look back to, I believe he was a lawyer during the Depression who just kind of kept a diary that is just so uh, illuminating at a time when, when most investors trying to realize what is historically possible in a time when stocks dropped 80 to 90 percent. And so thinking that however maybe remote that 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 is a possibility. And I'm going to add my favorite, by the way, uh, for this chapter, which would be Triumph for the Optimists, uh, which is written by a handful of, of British professors. So let me let me let me interject a couple of comments. I, I, mm -hmm. you, you throw me some red meat, and I, I can't I can't help but uh, but but pick up on them. The, the the Roth book is a fabulous book, and there's a wonderful section in there that I love to quote, where people you know understood. It's quite clear from the from the diary from his diary that people understood that stocks and bonds were cheap. Okay, and everybody knew that they could. Most everybody knew they were going to make high returns, but no one had any money. And there's a wonderful correlate of that, a quote from Benjamin Graham, uh, and I can't remember whether it's from Intelligent uh, Investor or or Security Analysis. I think it's from the Intelligent Investor, in which he said that the people with the cash didn't have the enterprise, and the people with the enterprise didn't have the cash. And what he meant by the word enterprise was moxie, was guts, plunging, putting money into the market. So the ones who had already plunged into the market, the plungers, the ones with the enterprise, had no money left. <laughs> Whereas the ones who didn't have any enterprise um, and who weren't ever going to buy stocks, those were the ones with the cash. The other thing about Triumph of the Optimists is, you know, Elroy Dimson and, and, and Staunton and Marsh, they're wonderful guys, and it's a wonderful book, but it costs $150. And you can get pretty much the same thing, as well as a lot of additional research, from uh, a, uh, a series of free uh, yearbooks that they put out with Credit Suisse. 
So just put in, you know, Tribe of the Optimists, Credit Suisse, Elroy Dimson into your search engine, and you'll come up with about nine or ten now um, uh, um, uh, white papers that are free and basically contain everything in Tribe of the Optimists, plus plus a lot more. That's my number one read of the year every time it comes out, and it's um, it's definitely not for the beginner reader, but there's so much in there. Um, that's like a Masters of Investing right there. Well, so c- coming to the next one, which is Hurdle 4, uh, it's particularly interesting to me. Uh, you know, we, we got two, I got a former biotech engineer here and then also a, a doctor, and, and this one is, the hurdle is know thyself. And basically overcoming the biggest enemy, which is which is yourself, when implementing your portfolio. So, why is it so hard? And and is there any sort of hacks you have that you think are useful for investors to becoming, you know, not their own worst enemy? And is it something that investors can do to to grow that muscle of, of becoming, you know, not 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 a detriment to their portfolio, or is it something they just have to to learn the lessons the hard way? What's what's your what's your thoughts here? I'm afraid that the answer is is your last your last answer, which is you just have to learn uh, the hard way. Uh, one of the things I'm fond of saying is that the most profitable purchases I've made in my life of securities were made at a time when I feel, felt like I was about to throw up. The, the more comfortable you are buying something in general, the worse uh, an investment it's going to be. If you feel sick at your stomach when you're buying something because it's been doing so poorly and you just see, you know, decreasing in price every day, that in the long term is generally going to wind up to be uh, in good investment. Um, you know, a lot of the Kahneman Tversky stuff is is also extremely valuable. Uh, and particularly uh, the you know to realize just how overconfident people can be. And knowing yourself is is really hard because we as human beings have this tendency towards self-affirmation. We always want to feel good about ourselves. So we become overconfident. And here's the old chestnut about 90% of drivers thinking they're better than average. But there's something else that I think is even more important than that, and that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which basically says that there's an inverse correlation between competence and self evaluated competence. So the people who tend to be the the best at something tend to be consumed by self-doubt, whereas the the people who are absolutely incompetent turn turn out to be turn out to be uh, very, very self-confident. They 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 think they're really doing doing very well. And the reasons for that are very, very complex. But you see it in a number of fields. You certainly see it in medicine, the best doctors uh, tend to tend to uh, be consumed by self-doubt. The real quacks turn to be supremely self-confident. And it's the same way in investing as well. So if you think you're a really good investor, uh, that is a danger sign. And it's it's interesting because I, I certainly have most of these behavioral biases. I'm overconfident. I take too much risk, which is one of the main reasons I became a quant. But it was also just like you described is I, I went through that experience after losing a bunch of money and blowing up my account and doing all the dumb stuff. And it's it's kind of like, you know, telling an investor, hey, here's what it's going to feel like to lose 50% or whatever your portfolio. You know, the analogy being it's like it's like explaining sex to a virgin where you it's really hard to try to tell people what the real physical pain of losing money is like until they're eating, you know, mustard sandwiches for a year. Is is there one behavioral bias or, or that you think is is the most destructive that uh you know is, is the one you see the most from investors yeah it's overestimating your risk tolerance it's just exactly what you described there's that wonderful phrase the par- paraphrase 
uh, you just paraphrase, which comes from Fred Schwed, where the customer's yachts. And I, I can't do, do quote word for word, but I can get close, which is that no picture that I can draw or no words that I can write down can describe what it feels like to lose a real chunk of money that you used to own. And that's exactly it, is you can spreadsheet, you know, if you're a quant, you can spreadsheet out things from now until breakfast. Uh, you can you know, show your portfolio falling 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 percent, depending on what your portfolio is. And you can look at it and say, yeah, I'll, I'll be able to, uh, to, to to tolerate that. And then when it happens in real time, you're, you're faced with a completely different kettle of fish. It's not nearly it's going it's 100 times worse than you thought it was going to be. There's there's a quote that I'm going to read um, from Bill that I've I've certainly used many times um, and and I'll summarize it real quick. It says he was talking about 2008 crisis and you said a lot of people won the game before the crisis happened. They'd saved enough for retirement, um, but continued to take risks by investing in equities. Afterward, after the crisis, many of them sold either at or near the bottom and never bought back in. And those people have irretrievably damaged themselves. I, I began to understand this point 10, 15 years ago, but now I'm convinced. When you've won the game, why keep playing it? How risky stocks are given investor depends on which part of the life cycle he or she is in. For a younger investor, stocks aren't as risky as they seem. For the middle age, they're pretty risky. And for a retired person, they can be nuclear level toxic. And so I, I think this is a really useful description of portfolio construction and, and we often tell people you know to err on the side of less risk than more um and i don't even really have a question there i just wanted to read your wonderful wonderful <laughs> quote but i think it's i think it's a really useful um uh, illustration yeah people 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 over interpret that by you know that 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 passage you just uh read is saying that old people or older people shouldn't own stocks um, and that's really not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the money that you need to retire on, the money that you need to subsist safely on during your retirement should be very conservatively invested. Now, you know, if you've got three or four times that amount of money, uh, you can invest the surplus uh, in stocks if you can tolerate it, because it's really not your money, okay? That money is going to somebody else. It's going to go to your heirs or your charities, or if you're patriotic enough, it's going to go to Uncle Sam. And, and you illustrate a, a pretty important point with a lot of the online risk tolerance questionnaires is they automatically assume, and not, not too terribly so, that young people uh, you know, should be having, you know, most of their allocation stocks and older people, most in bonds. And, and generally, that's probably a good rule of thumb. But but in many cases, there's um, uh, the opposite could be true. The book recommendation for this uh, for this section for this hurdle was Your Money in Your Brain by Jason Zweig. A lot of great behavioral research books out there. This is certainly um, one of the best. So if you've, uh, all right, so you got the equation for the portfolio, you learn to pay down your debt, not spend too much money or saving, you, you do a little bit of understanding finance and history, the fifth hurdle coming to is kind of the implementation. And, and one of the big things you say is avoid the monsters, which is really the predatory financial pros. And you said this in a very nice way, you said you were in fact locked in a financial life and death struggle with the investment industry. Losing that battle puts you at increased risk of running short of assets far sooner than you like. What's what's your comments and recommendations here? Well, it's it's funny. I mean, this came home to me today. Um, I was setting up a um, just a, a online banking account with a large 
uh, financial institution that also has a brokerage arm. And, you know, I was on hold for a few minutes. It wasn't too bad. But the the, the hold uh, um, soundtrack was financial commentary. And it's all what you and I would call financial pornography. That was a term that was invented by... Um, uh, I'll try to remember the name. She she wrote it in a uh, an article in the Columbia Journal. Uh, Jane Bryant Quinn. It's her her phrase. And so it's you know all about where 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 this particular company thinks that interest rates are going to go and where the economy is going to go and what stocks you should buy and what stocks you should sell. And it's it's snake oil. Uh, and the large full service uh, brokerage houses and financial service institutions want to convince you that they know how to pick stocks and they know how to time the market and they can interpret what's happening in real time in the economy and how it affects your your portfolio, which is, it's an impossibility. Uh, anyone who knows anything about finance knows you can't do that um, because of, of market efficiency. And you need to stay away from these people. Just stay away from them. Don't listen to them. Don't give them your money to invest. Uh, you should invest uh, only in vehicles that are that are passive uh, and that have the lowest possible fees. And of course, you know, you and I are both very fond of the Vanguard Group, but there are other places where you can invest uh, just as cheaply as well. And, and so, but here, here's kind of the challenge for a lot of people, right? As they uh, say, avoid a lot of the the predators. And there's a lot of good ones out there. So one for a lot of people, it's it's how to find them. But two, you know, some people say, look, I can do it on my own. You know, I'll just I, I've conquered all these all these roadblocks, but I've I've read in a few places where your estimates of people that could probably do it on their own, uh, like I've seen some places where you say it's as low as one percent, and so so for what there becomes this this challenge for people that either they think they can do it on their own and they can't because they fall prey to all the other hurdles. Um, what, what's kind of your recommendation for most of the individuals that would be listening to this podcast? Is it to pair up with an advisor? Is it to, to really try to do it on their own? What's, what, what's, uh, what's your best takeaways? The, the, the best way to do it is simply to make it as simple and as automatic as possible. Now, I have you know the, 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 the three fund portfolio that I recommend, but if you have this option, even better than that is a good life cycle uh, fund, a target retirement fund. So, you know, if you have one of those funds, it has very low expenses. Vanguard, if you're lucky enough to have the Vanguard uh, target retirement funds, or even better, if you're a federal employee and you have uh, access to the TSP life cycle funds, just, you know, put your 15% of your salary, 20% of your salary uh, into that every month. And don't ever look at your brokerage statement. Don't ever look at your financial statement. That's the way to do it. Um if you can do it on your own and you can, you know, maintain a more complex portfolio than that, you know, a three-fund portfolio or something more complex than that, at a bare minimum, it requires an ability to, to spreadsheet and to keep track of your investments. And once you're keeping track of your investments, you're, 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 you're already going to possibly get into trouble because, you know, one of my favorite phrases, and maybe it comes from you, maybe it comes from someone else, I can't remember who it comes from, but it, that a... Uh, that a um, uh, an asset allocation is like a wet bar of soap. The, the more frequently you touch it, the more rapidly it disappears. And, and so, and so, and so, yeah, you can do it yourself, uh, but it's 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 difficult. And I, you're, I think the one percent estimate is probably about right. Uh, 
I, I come up with actually a theoretical estimate of around one one hundredth of one percent, but that may be that may be off. And so, what do you think about all the technological advances, like a lot of the robo advisors today? Do you think that's interesting? Not that interesting? More of the same? What's uh, any any thoughts there? Well, you know, robo. I, I, I in general, I think the robos are a good idea. Their expenses are low, and they're done automatically. And if you can do it, and if it enables you to do it in a hands-off manner, that's all to the good. Um, but you're just as well off, if not better off, with a good life strategy fund, which does exactly the same thing as a robo. You know, Jeff, Jeff and I and then the crew here at Cambria, we brainstorm a lot of behavioral nudges, which is trying to get people to do the right thing. And we've mentioned a lot in this podcast already, such as having automatic savings plan to go into your 401k and all these other things to do. Um, the challenge we've always thought about is we said, you know, for example, we have a asset allocation ETF that charges all in 25 basis points. But the problem is with any fund or ETF, people can still sell it any given day. And same thing, even if you have an advisor, if you put in that wall in between you and your worst version of yourself, you can still fire that advisor. And many people do after a few years of, of underperformance or whatnot. So Jeff and I were in the crew were brainstorming a strategy. He said, what if, what if you could do a mutual fund that was very low cost, so less than 50 basis points, asset allocation, global fund, and let's implement both penalties and rewards. So the penalty would be a trailing redemption fee over maybe five or 10 years. So maybe year one, it's 5% fee or 10% or something really terrible. And then trails to whatever, five or 10 years to where it's zero. So if you hold long enough, it's it's no fee. But the reward is that the fee collectively goes back to the investors where you get not only the benefit of holding for a long period, but you, you benefit off other people. I think it's a great idea, but I think we'd end up getting sued at some point anyway. Anyway, throwing it out there. Um, so if you come up with any, if you come up with any great behavioral nudges, let us know. We're, we're, we'd love to. I thought about that precise strategy myself. I think it's a great idea. Uh, and I think the lawyers, you're right, the lawyers would eat you alive. I was, I was talking to a common friend, Jason Zweig, about it, and he said, Meb, there was something similar existed in the 90s where it had like a longer term lockup. And, and sure enough, in 2000, all the lawyer cars, calls started coming and, and, and suing the fund for redemption. So anyway, um, on the, on the to-do list, no reading lessons for this chapter, but in the summary, we got two more. Um, one was How a Second Grader Beats Wall Street by Alan Roth, which I don't think I've ever read. And uh, All About Asset Allocation by Rick Ferry, who is somewhere traveling the U.S. in a um, RV right now, I think. Uh, so that, that kind of winds up the summary of the book. I would like to turn this to a little more kind of potpourri questions on all sorts of different topics. And we don't have too much time, sadly, so I'm going to try to have these be quick hits one interesting development we saw in the last couple of weeks, New York Times was reporting on it, but uh, was that the CIO of Wealthfront, Burton Malkiel, um, investment legend, written, has written one of the most famous books, Random Walk Down Wall Street, had, had made a little bit of an interesting announcement to where he has kind of changed his, his colors a little bit to um, now being a proponent of smart beta investing. You know, Rob Arnott called that a fascinating turn of events. Um, wanted to hear your thoughts in general on on moving away from the market cap 
uh, weighted indices? Something you like, love, hate, agnostic? Well, it's 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 you know, smart beta is um, it's it's a marketing term. It's a better term is smart marketing. There's nothing wrong with it. I write I've written about uh, the same basic concept in all of my books, except for the last one that we're talking about, which is if you can. But my more in depth books talk about this this basic idea, which is a tilting towards small stocks and uh, and particularly value stocks, and that's what smart beta does. Smart beta, you know, uh, underweights uh, or completely eliminates in some cases more expensive stocks and uh, loads up on on cheap stocks by quantitative. Criteria, and there are, you know, you know, talking about smart beta. I don't know, it's a terrible analogy. It's like, it's like talking about pizza. There's lots of different kinds of pizza, and there's lots of different kinds of of smart beta. And you know, so the, the two big shops that that do it are Rob's, which is why he uses the word fascinating. Um, you know, his products are, are certainly very well constructed. Uh, and then the other shop that does it, of course, as we're both aware, is Conventional Fund Advisors. Um, you know, there's no difference between what there's almost no difference between what Rob's doing and what D- DFA is is doing. You know, and then it's you know you're going to get higher returns probably, um, and that will be for higher risk. All right. So if you look, for example, at what DFA's funds did during the financial crisis, they got hammered. Worse than the market did, but their long-term returns are higher, and that's just the way things should be in finance. Um, and I, the, the problem that I see with smart beta is that it's being met by a wall of dumb money, the people who who really have no concept that it's going to have, you know, this approach is going to have periods of um, of, of underperformance where it'll underperform uh, the, the market overall. Uh, and when that happens, they, they won't understand what's happening. They will bail. Uh, prices will fall even lower, which will raise long-term returns for people who've got discipline and under, actually understand the strategy. So, so what other areas are you excited about today? Anything in particular you're thinking about? Research? You mentioned bubbles a little bit. Any other areas of investing in finance that you're particularly keen on, uh, you know, look, looking out in the, in the next coming years? Not, I mean, I hate to, to be a curmudgeon. Um, you know, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you have to read tens of thousands of articles or of, of, of case, case studies, um, uh, case law. Um, in finance... Um, you know, if I had to make a list of the seminal articles in finance that everyone really should understand, it wouldn't be more than 30 or 40 articles long. So the odds. I of, would love to see that list. I think that's perfect homework for you. I, I, we'll, we'll publish it if you put it together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's really not that hard. All you would have to do is just go into um, uh, JSTOR and for Journal of Finance and JFEN uh, and a few other you know high uh, high level uh, journals and just look at the ones that are the most cited. You get the same list as, as I think I would produce. You know, obviously you'd start with FOM and French and you talk about you know the limits of arbitrage um, by Lacanachak and Schlieffer and then it goes down from from there. You know, and of course, starting with Michael Jensen's seminal article in 1964 on on, on fund performance. So the bottom line is, I, I don't get very excited about very many things in finance at all because um, I don't just, I don't find I don't it's the, the 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 research is interesting to read, but I don't find it of much practical import. One one or two more questions, and then we're going to have to wind down. And let let you go. Um, this next question, or, or just jumping off point, I think is an area that. Many, 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 particularly individuals get 
wrong or or misunderstand and, and you say only an income producing possession such as a stock bond or working piece of real estate is a true investment home ownership is not an investment it's exactly the opposite a consumption item uh, maybe explain what you what you mean there yeah you have to own a home all right um or if you don't own a home you have to pay rent to someone um, and so, in effect, you know, your house is paying you imputed rent, which really is an income. Um, you know, it's it's to me it, to me counting your house as an asset uh, makes almost as much sense as counting your food budget. Obviously, you can't sell your food, and you can sell your house. But if you sell your house, then you've got a real problem, which is then you've got to find you've got to pay rent to someone. Um, so you're you know, and and, and a house. You know, in general, I mean, you know, there, of course, there are exceptions, and there have been exceptions, uh, which are some of the richer real estate markets. But on average, uh, the house, a house, is a terrible investment uh, because its real value doesn't increase by much more than about one percent uh, per year after, you know, after inflation. Uh, and you've got expenses, you have maintenance up, you have upkeep, you have uh, uh, taxes uh, to pay. Um, so it's really not a great investment. It's, it's an expense. And the less you can spend on your house, probably the better off you are. I think that's, that's something that almost always surprises most of, most of the individual investors I talk to. Um, two more quick ones, and we're going to let you go. Cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, any, any feelings, any thoughts? Rat poison, like Charlie Munger says, or, or a, a major new innovation? Well, you know, uh, it's both. Um, from the point of view of an asset class, sure, it's rat poison. But I think it's interesting uh, as a financial technology, which, you know, the, the, whole, the whole blockchain concept may change the entire nature of how our financial system works. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's a good investment. You know, it's the same. It's the same thing. You know, you can. You know, the, the analogy I guess I would use would be the internet companies of the '90s. You know, the internet really did change the way we live. It really did change everything. But on average, you didn't make any money by investing in these companies. One more question, and this is the one that we ask everyone uh, on the podcast in 2017, which is, and you can you can take a minute to think about it if you want. Uh, looking back over your career. And this could be good, bad, money losing, money winning, whatever. What is your most memorable investment or trade? Oh, well, I was I was hoping you weren't asking me what's the biggest mistake that I made. It's what I did. Hey, that's the same one. Yeah. My, for, for me, it's the same exact one, by yeah. the way. I, I mean, I've made, you know, I've made all the, the, you know, when I was much younger, I did all the stupid things that young, stupid professionals do, which is I dabbled in futures and I picked individual stocks and mutual funds. And that turned out about as well as you might expect those things to turn out. But the biggest mistake that I made easily was not understanding, and I only understood this, really understood this well the past five years, is the difference is, is how the risk of stocks varies over life cycles. So I should have been much more aggressive in my stock purchases and my allocation when I was a, a much younger man. And that, that's easily the biggest mistake I made because I didn't understand that stocks to someone who's saving a lot of money and who's, whose um, investment capital uh, is dwarfed by their human capital, which was the situation when I was in my 20s and 30s and even early 50s. Mm -hmm. Stocks aren't all that risky, and I should have been much more aggressive. Yeah, I mean, listeners have already heard about all mine, which are many. And, and the interesting part is always, I always say, look, I, I'm glad they happened, particularly when I had less money. But 
Mine was certainly an option strangle on biotech stocks back in the day. You, you had mentioned earlier, and I don't know if you want to expand on this or because we're running out of time a bit about, um, you know, we, we like to ask people how their thinking has changed on certain topics. And, and you briefly mentioned how your thinking on bubbles has changed and, and why theorists are, are so confused by them. Is that something you want to chat for a minute about or, or are we, we got we to gotta let you go? Well, I think I pretty well covered it, which is okay. that, that I, I, I think that when you, you talk about bubbles, you know, the, 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 the analogy I like to use, I didn't talk about this, but it's a wonderful analogy, is the way Potter Stewart, Justice Potter Stewart, thought about por- pornography. Okay, which was he has this long opinion in Jacobellus, Ohio. And the thing that everyone remembers is the tagline, which is, I I know it when I see it. Okay, but the sentence or two that comes before that is, I really don't know how to describe it or define it. And if he were in finance and he was talking about bubbles, what he would say is, I don't know how to mathematically model bubbles, but I know it when I see it. And the trick is to to read about the 90s, uh, read about you know the real estate. Most people don't remember what the real estate market looked like uh, 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago. That's what a bubble looks like, and we're not in one now. Yeah, I mean, and, and there are some kind of soft quantitative uh, resources. You know, we we mentioned some of the sentiment surveys by Intelligence Investing and, and American Association of Individual Investors. Um, you know, and our favorite example is the AAI study, which goes back to the eighties, the single most bullish people month people were on stocks was in January of 2000 and the single most bearish month they were was in March of 2009. So there's, there's some sort of quantitative guideposts we can use, but, um, I have the all time secret weapon, uh, which is my mother and she, um, gets, gets it right exactly 180 degrees wrong on on almost every major bubble top peak and bottom uh so uh but she's been very quiet lately she hasn't said much she hasn't even brought up bitcoin so i got it's a kind of a calm market for her yeah that's that's a really useful thing to do and i think this is a dirty secret that all finance professionals have is we all have certain people are and their friends or acquaintances they're very often relatives who we listen to very carefully because they're always wrong Although the problem is my mom is is the number one podcast listener, so I may have tainted the pool by mentioning it. So she may she may be biased now. Um, but uh, Bill, this has been a blast. I mean, we may have to get you back on in a year from now to do the super wonky version of this podcast with like the the really deep academic dive. But but if people want to uh, follow you, um, where's where's the best place they can uh, find more information? Go to my website, efficientfrontier.com. Um, but I have to tell you, that site is more of a mausoleum than anything else. I mean, I, I don't, I, I almost never post on it anymore. In fact, I think the last time I posted on it was, 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 was two years. I, I spend most of my time reading and writing about things that aren't directly related to finance anymore. And I have this other career as, a, as, a, as a nonfiction writer, which I spend most of my time on. Uh, I mean, I, I can't say I'm getting bored with finance. I, I always find it fascinating, but I'm not writing about it nearly as much as I used to. Are you, are you, have you read anything particularly wonderful lately or anything that's really stuck out for our, for our summer reading list? Oh, dear. Not, not, not in terms of um, investing. Uh, I mean, No, anything. Yeah, we're, we, oh, we're, we're done with investing well, there's, now. There's, what, there's, what, two, there's two books. The one is the book that I recommend to every single person I, come in, I run into, which is Ted Locke's Expert Political Judgment. Um, you know, he's got a newer one on super forecasting, but the expert political judgment is it will revolutionize the way you look at forecasting and the world. 
and of, of people who forecast, and particularly of pundits. It's a marvelous book. And then the other book uh, was 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 um, a book written by Walter Scheidel called The Great Leveler, uh, which is about the fundamental nature of economic inequality of capitalism. And it's a very depressing book. But if you want to understand what's happening in the country politically, uh, that's a book you should read. Excellent. I've I've read Tetlock's more recent one, but haven't read either of these books. So we'll we'll toss them up on the show notes. They're not. Um, By the way, by the way, they are not. They are not cotton candy. They are not beach reads. They're serious books. The book that I've given more than anything other than our own books um, is a behavioral psychology book, and the title is a little misleading because it's about evolution and and, in biology. Have you read um, Olivia Judson's? Dr. Tatiana's sex advice to all creation. No, what a wonderful time. No, I'm going to send it. I'm going to send it to you as a thank you for coming on the podcast. This is my single favorite book. She's actually coming out with a new book later this year, I think, because we're trying, we're trying our best to get her on the podcast, but it's this wonderful deep dive into all sorts of different species on the planet and how they've kind of evolved all these crazy traits to each other. And it, it really was one of the first books for me that, you know, give you a step back and kind of made you think of why you spend all the time doing what you do all day it may not necessarily be, it, it may be stuck in your genes somewhere. Really fun book. Readers, it's it's well worth the time. Bill, it's been awesome. I've had a blast. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time today. Me too. You'd have a good one. Listeners, we always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at themedfavorshow.com. We'll post a lot of show notes, links to Bill's books, his website, everything else at mebfaber.com forward slash podcasts. You can always subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by the ride-sharing app Lyft. While I only live about two miles from work, my favorite means of getting around traffic-clogged Los Angeles is to use the various ride-sharing apps, and Lyft is my favorite. Today, if you go to lyft.com forward slash invite forward slash meb, you get a free $50 credit to your first rides. Again, that's lyft.com forward slash invite forward slash meb.